0: That cancel culture on the left is is very dangerous and detrimental, as much as I think some of the extreme right is as well, because we have to be able to express ourselves.
1: Welcome to The Gary Scott Thomas Show. Here's what we know the podcast with unexpected conversations. Listen each week as we engage in unscripted conversations where we'll be just as surprised as you will be with where the dialogue goes. So join us each week and be privy to the captivating conversations that are sure to ensue. Here's your host, Gary Scott Thomas.
2: Welcome to the latest edition of Here's What We Know. I'm Gary Scott Thomas, and I'm always a fan of people with three names, especially three first names. That's why I'm thrilled to have on the program Seth David Radwell.
0: It's a pleasure to be with you here. Great. Thank you, Gary. I'm glad to be here.
2: I am so excited. Seth has written the book, American Schism, how the uh, the two enlightenments hold the secret to healing our nation. And I can't wait to dive into this with you because we're going to go just all in because I've had this conversation Great. with a buddy of mine. But I wanted to ask you, first and foremost, I want to back up just a little bit. This is a guy who took right. 3 years off to write a book. Now, he wasn't he wasn't a librarian. He wasn't a he wasn't a, an architect or or an accountant. You were a CEO of some fairly large companies.
0: Yes, indeed, I was. I'm fortunate, Gary, to have had a wonderful business career, and I've led some great consumer brands over the years. Most recently, I was CEO of Proactive, which was the largest acne skincare brand. It's now been acquired by another company. But before that, I worked at Scholastic. I was the CEO and many other brands. And and part of the whole um, reason, if you will, that I hope we can talk about a little bit this morning, is that. I, I felt too many folks in the business community, too many of my peers, were putting their head in the sand as things in our country are so crazy today, and I feel like they should get involved.
2: I I completely agree with you and and we're gonna go down that path too to figure out what it was. But I do wanna ask you, because you don't ever get a chance to ask people this, what in the world is it like to be the CEO of a major company? What what are the pressures? What are the because we all see the private jets, we all see dinner at the French laundry, but we don't see what actually goes into everything that happens.
0: Well, that that's the thing. It it looks very um, glamorous, so to speak. I guess for some fe- people, but I, having led a couple of companies over the course of the last thirty years, I can tell you that uh, it, the stress is enormous. Mostly because not only of your brand, and your products, and your customers, but of thousands of employees who depend on what your leadership for their livelihoods. And so, I think most of my peers that I know who've been either C level executives or CEOs. The stress is pretty amazing. It's pretty enormous. And I don't know if people realize that uh, when they, they see kind of from the outside in how glamorous it looks. It's, it's usually 14-hour days, if not 16-hour days, sometimes longer, and it's usually a lot of stress.
2: And then you add the stress into it of having to navigate the social media waters that have come up in the last 10 years. Oh, yes. I, yes. It, It's crazy because you're trying to do the right thing not to get into using the term of the day canceled or or at the yes. very least besmirched.
0: Absolutely. I and mean, in fact, that's one of, one of my big uh, criticisms or points in the book is that that, that cancel culture on the left is, is very dangerous and detrimental, as much as I think some of the extreme right is as well, because we have to be able to express ourselves. And what I found is, Gary, that many of my colleagues, business people, are afraid to say anything because they treat politics like a third rail. They're afraid to, to, they're afraid to bring on the wrath or the rancor of some group or person
2: and And the truth of it is, as we have found, once you go down the apology route, you can't ever apologize enough You, you just can't, and you're going to lose you're going to lose whatever you're trying to save anyway.
0: Correct, and and that that we have to get rid of that. We have to be able to have honest conversations where we're not so concerned about every word that we that we utter that must be politically correct. So I'm I'm you know the the call to action of the book, and I'm sure we'll get into it, is about fighting unreason with reason and restoring, rehabilitating, if you will, a civic, political discourse based on reason and logic as opposed to only based on anger and emotion and
2: and passion what i loved about the book and i'll tell you guys seth i i had this conversation i have a nine and eleven year old right and i was having this conversation with my son uh, literally i think last year you know when we're doing the elections and all this stuff and he goes dad has it ever been as bad as this and i looked at him because i'm a i'm a student of history i didn't major in history but i've always been fascinated about it i said son you have no idea. This has always been this way. Our founding fathers yelled and screamed at each other. Thomas Jefferson paid, you know, people to write scandalous stories about John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. I mean, this has been the way of American politics and British politics, for that matter, for as long. This is just we just now hear about it more because it's on a big loudspeaker instead of the rooms that they used to be shouted in.
0: Yes in fact you know it's so funny that you mentioned that because I was having this conversation with someone recently who was telling me well with with digital media social media say isn't it easier to amplify misinformation and to spread, spread uh, things that may not be true. And I said, well, I guess to some degree it may be faster. But remember that in the 18th century, people put out pamphlets all the time. And there was so much printed that contained a lot of garbage, too. <laughs> so it, every age that there's been communication, there's been various uses of propaganda and misinformation and shouting. It's not very new. And you're right about that.
2: Well, it's where the term muckraker came from. I mean, that German journalism came from that age. And the thing of it is, is we have different, we have different, uh, so many different sources, right? We can pick and choose. But a pamphlet that came out in the 1700s was, for the people who could read, devoured and taken as gospel. So you could write yes. anything you wanted. And again, John Adams, uh, ask John Adams about, you know, that and the, uh, the whole sedition thing. And, and you could just say whatever you wanted. And, and it was nothing that could be done. There was no rebuttal that you could get out there.
0: Right. Correct. And I, I like that you're bringing up John Adams because the core thesis of the book, American schism is that the divide that we see in America, today, a lot of the divisions that we, observed that it seems so uh, violent, if you will, they have antecedents really going back to our founding. And the split between what became the Federalists and, and Jeffersonian party uh, were, was really about two visions for what America could be that came out of the Enlightenment. And it was pretty personal. I mean, Adams, Adams, and, Ham, Adams and Hamilton kind of formed up on one side and eventually brought Washington over, and then you had, you know, Jeff- the Jefferson De- Democratic Republicans and Madison and others, and they—they they were. It was pretty bitter. Is my point?
2: Yeah, and and it's been that way since the beginning. People think that we developed this. Uh, I I was saying this a uh, conversation the other day. If you brought John Adams and Thomas Jefferson back today, and if you expected them to be surprised by the vitriol, they wouldn't be. It's my opinion they wouldn't be surprised by the vitriol. They'd be like, "Oh, you guys are still doing this, right?" Oh, okay. So this guy's the demon and this guy's the devil. Okay, I got it. I think there's
0: one difference, and I point this out in the book, though, Gary. That's worth considering. So both the, the two sides back then in the founding period of the and, and in the book, I describe what the difference between them uh, uh, between this radical and modern enlightenment. I can get into that if you're if you'd like to. Yeah, But, yeah. but, but both sides, but, but both sides though, before were grounded because they were enlightenment people. They were in, of the age of enlightenment. They were both grounded in reason and logic. In other words, today. The debate is often uh, inserted by, you know, passion enters it, and sometimes uh, the notion that there is no objective truth, and this kind of uh, more faith-based argument. Whereas I think that the the founding split really was grounded in the Enlightenment, and and, and thus was more about Enlightenment ideals like empirical truth and observation and reasoning.
2: Yeah. And, and, and you, and you factor in the emotions of it. I mean, that's where we are today. But even then, I think, I think Jefferson showed even schisms of that when he brought his Jeffersonian Bible out. Right. I mean, so, so there was, <laughs> there was, there was always yeah. that, that schism, even within his mind, you know, here's, here's a guy who yeah. wanted to have a small central government and, and believed in, but he couldn't control his own spending. You know, died in debt. Uh,
1: yeah, exactly. So the, exactly. the schism That's that, right.
2: s- that surrounded even in his mind was there. Uh, we talk about, it. I love, I love this book and, and guys, you, you have to check it out because it does argue that we think that slavery was celebrated. It was it was a point of contention at the at the beginning of this this of uh, of this country that we knew, and I'm using a religious term here. We knew that it was a sin that was going to have to be repaid or repented at some point, even at the beginning.
0: Absolutely, it was the it was the great contradiction, and all of them in the room knew it. I mean, it's it, it's very funny how Jefferson spent a lot of his time writing about these manumission plans for how we could get past slavery. How could it, how could we dissolve it? And he was so concerned about the violence that would incur upon its dissolution that he came up with these crazy plans. It was on the, on the minds of everyone. And I, I think one of the important uh, things to remember is that uh, both the Declaration of Independence and, In 1776, and the 12-year period following, which led to the Constitution, it was always in the background. And that, again, is explored in the book American Schism.
2: Well, and that's it. When, when When they created this country, and again, this is just my opinion, they created it with the idea that they weren't living up to the ideals, but they hoped the future would
0: complete, that's that's one of the the most important points that I remind readers all the time. The, the credo, which is the Declaration, was one in which uh, they knew that the blueprint they created 12 years later uh, wasn't living up to completely, but that's why they made it amendable. You know, you know Gary, uh, it's worth at this point probably spending a second on, you know, what were these two different conflicting visions between the moderates and the radicals? And the way I pointed out, is, of course, it's quite complex, but and to simplify it for your listeners, I mean, there were two things that the radicals like Jefferson, uh, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Paine believed in that the moderates did it. And that, that those things were, number one, the idea of a representative democracy, a government of the people. Uh, was something that, that they learned from the French Enlighteners that, that they took hold of and believed that kind of decentralized people-led government of the people was fundamental. Now, the, the moderates of the time were somewhat afraid of democracy because d- democracy meant demagogues or mobs. And the people who knew how to govern at that time were the the elite, the educated, like themselves. So, interestingly... They in the the Constitution, they put in place what I call strong guardrails against democracy. So, of course, there is democratic elements like the House, but at the time of the Constitution, it was much more the mixed government model, where with the control or balance of powers, which came out of Montesquieu, the, the philosopher of Locke, if you will, and there were there were real aristocratic. uh uh, elements of that, like the Senate, upper house that was appointed by the state legislative bodies, the notion of a strong executive, so uh, this balance between a democratic republic and mo- a more aristocratic republic was one of the core differences between the two two camps. Now, another one that's worth mentioning for a second is the radicals, uh, because they they had uh, documented in such great detail in Europe, how for centuries there was a collusion between the church and the monarchy to keep the people oppressed. It was the radicals that insisted on a separation of church and state. Today, what we call that that separation. So in other words, they believed the civic arena needed to be kept apart from the faith-based arena. And Jefferson famously wrote, You know, in in the new country, in our new republic, we should not only have freedom of religion, but freedom from religion. Uh So that was another core difference between the moderates and the radicals.
2: I I just find all of this so fascinating because there's so many rabbit holes. I could just love going down with you. And and you could see mm-hmm. when, when you start when you start connecting all the dots. I mean, yeah. you have to remember where 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 the founding fathers were. They were even though it was hundreds of years ago, it was still a history that they were familiar with that Henry VIII created a church that he was not a member of. Yeah.
0: You know, <laughs>
2: right. I mean, right? Right. Well, he made well, the Church, church the of England who but was never reach. a member of the Church of England. He he remained devoutly Catholic, and 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 that see that yeah. schism that you would literally create a church for governmental purposes only. That was something right. that was very real to them.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely, and it's it's so fascinating how history has those turns. There are so many of them, and then of course, you know, after in the three centuries following Henry VIII, there was more war over religion between the Protestants and Catholics in Europe than almost since the Crusades. So the amount of people who. Kind of died in the name of differences in beliefs is, is kind of unbelievable.
2: Well, and the people who want to get scared, I I remember having this conversation. You know, when when uh, when Trump was elected, and and you know the number of people were like, oh my god, this is it, yeah, the country's over. And my attitude was, right. listen. The president doesn't have that much power outside of being able to influence. Your life is not going to be different. You're not going to go to the grocery store tomorrow and find an armed guard. You're not going to find a riot right. at at, at Chasey Penny's or, or Macy's or whatever. Your day-to-day life is going to remain your day-to-day life. And it's always been that way because people were afraid. People were afraid of Andrew Jackson. People were afraid of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. And, and truly, their day-to-day life doesn't change.
0: Right. I think that's true. But I also think that, that over the last couple of years, we've seen th- this, uh, this uh, collapse of, of, of discourse that, mm-hmm. that what happened, my research shows in the book that 77% of Americans are part of what I call the frustrated majority, meaning, <laughs> meaning that, they, 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 that they fear so, so much screaming on the left and right extreme that they feel like, A, that their voice is crowded out, B, they believe that, you know, what happened to the country? And C, they're afraid to, to, to speak out. So, so you know, American schism in some degree is a, a, a call out to them to reestablish their ability to have a voice that doesn't have to be shouting, but, but also can be reasonable and recognize that as Americans, we do have a lot of differences, but we have a lot in common and we have a great heritage that's worth a passing on to our children. And and that's what the third part of the book discusses.
2: Well, and that's the thing. I think the majority of us, as you said, the frustrated majority, they realize this is a great country. Have we done things wrong? Sure. I defy you to find one country that hasn't uh, because humans are fallible and stuff, but it's, it's the goals. I know I grew up uh, in the South, in the Deep South, to, to th- say that the country hasn't changed. If you would have asked my 18 year old self, do you think right. you'd ever see a black president? Do you think you'd ever see a female right. vice president, much less a female of color vice president? Uh, right. There's, right. there's right. absolutely no way that my person would have gone, I would like to, but it's never gonna happen. I mean, we've we've seen so many things, you know, that some of the biggest stars in America are people of color. And that's and that's the the change that I've seen in my life. So to sit back and go, oh, it's the country is horrible. No, the fact a a true horrible country would never let you say the country is horrible. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Go down to Cuba and talk (laughs) about how horrible a country is and see what happens. But see, this is
0: the thing, Gary, and and I've got to point this out in great detail. There are two. If you if you wonder or think about for a second why we've been the beacon of, of hope for the world for 150 years, this country, there are two things. And it's ironic because neither are perfect, but they're both better than alternatives. One thing, one reason we're the beacon of hope is that we're probably the best example of self government in the history of humankind. Uh, and, and our self government's not perfect. We have a lot of issues, we have a lot of inefficiency, we have a lot of money that probably shouldn't be in politics, whatever. It's not perfect. But the point is, it's better than the alternatives right? And the same is true of what I would say is the second reason why America is a beacon of hope. And that's what I call in the book, the meritocracy, the notion that here's a place that separate from you, you don't have to be of noble birth, but if you work hard and you're clever and you build your skills, you can build a successful life here. And that's what a meritocracy is all about. Now, is our meritocracy perfect? Does it have equality of opportunity for everyone? No. but And we should perfect it. We should improve it. But it's still better than the alternative, which is so many of the communist or socialist systems you see all over
2: the world. Well, I know you've heard this, and, and it's so nothing new to you, but the whole thing, I think the point of our system and is we want an equal starting line not an equal finish. Exactly. You know, if everybody's exactly. starting on the same line, then where you take it, are you going to end up a billionaire? No, but you can do things. As you said, you can follow the rules as far as effort and the stuff that you're willing to give and you will get. Success back now. What that definition of success is different for everybody, and it should be. You don't want everybody going. All right, well, okay, you're. You know, if I'm in a race, if I'm in the Olympic race, they shouldn't stop Usain Bolt to wait for me to catch up.
0: Right, a quality of of opportunity, not a quality of outcomes. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we should we should we should strive for quality of opportunity. Think what I hate about the extreme left is they want to throw all of it away and move towards some kind of a of outcomes of a socialist system, that's not the American credo. That's not what we're about. But I do think we should strive for a qual- better equality of opportunity. There that we have gaps and we can fix it. It's, it's, it's similar to our democracy. Our experimented self-government could be perfected. And the, 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 you made a very interesting point, Gary. You said how different the world is today than it was 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's so true, and it'll continue to be different. And that's proof very much that we are making progress. We're moving towards the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, in my view.
2: And it's always rough. Listen, eh, I love astrophysics, too. And they say when a planet becomes dead... (laughs) When, when the, when the, right. when the, when the uh, uh tectonic plates stop shifting, right? That's when a planet right. starts to die. So a vibrant planet is full of changes, and it's scary, and it's moving all the time, and you never quite know. That's why we have the, you know, the Yosemite uh, the, uh, the volcano that when it goes, right. half the half the U.S. goes. It's scary, but it takes that to be alive and to be vibrant and to, and to continue to grow
0: exactly i i agree 100%. you know one of the things i think i, I, I try to remind uh, readers is that there there are two things we get caught up that get get in the way today. one is i think uh, we've talked about this briefly that we too many of us or too many americans are caught in a partisan bubble which ne- meaning that they only get their news source from one place and as we both know what used to be called news like Walter Cronkite news that was kind of straight down the middle no longer really exists, at least not, not in TV. It does print maybe a little bit. But, but my point being, you need to look at different sources. You need to evaluate information and make your own judgment. Humans are smart. They're clever. They can, they can evaluate evidence. That's number one. So breaking out of our partisan bubble. I think the other bubble that too many Americans are caught in is what I call a time bubble. And this goes back to where we started, which is that history is a guide for us. It's not, not, we can look at history and use it to understand things about where we are today. One of the examples that I talk about uh, frequently, and it's touched on in the book, but I, I talk more about it, is that, you know, we've heard since earlier this year so many conversations and discussions about the assault on the Capitol on January 6th, and yet never do we hear it discussed or compared with the previous assaults on the government that happened in our country, January 6th was not the first attack on the government. In fact, a couple of years after, right before the Constitution was written, there was something called Shays' Rebellion, uh-huh. which is a very interesting situation because it really it, it helped delineate the line between what is protest and what's a valid protest from what is an attack to overthrow the government. And remember that back in in 1787, the model for uh, change was to overthrow the government. That's what the revolution was. So here's Daniel Shays, who was a revolutionary hero in Western Massachusetts, and he was injured in the war, fought for the country to become a country, and now this new Federalist plan is to tax the farmers to pay for the war and make the New York financiers rich. Well, they were pretty they were pretty angry at to say the least and they they tried to overthrow the government in Massachusetts. Now, I'm not saying it's exactly the same as January 6th, but there are lessons that are worth understanding and learning.
1: Uh,
2: yeah. And 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 when and when it goes to that, it's like you're talking about the frustrated majority. And and again, when you go to the fringes right. on either side, uh it, it's that's where you go to the crazy land. And and we yeah. can all sit back and go, you know, bad idea. They never talk about the vast majority of the people who were there didn't do a damn thing, you know, who just went home. Right. Uh yes. and, and as you you're right. that's the frustrated majority. The frustrated majority said, Hey, right. we're protesting, we don't believe whatever the, the outcome is. And then they went home and you had the radicals, right. as you always have radicals. It wasn't every student yep. at Berkeley that took over the dean's office. It was a handful of yep. radicals, you know, and right. and, and we right. we see that. And then you get on the left hand side and it's like, well, I don't know what you expect when you literally call anybody who disagrees with you a Nazi and and that you yeah, that you should be terrible. able to punch a nazi in the face and oh by the way we're going to change what the definition of nazi is and again being a student of history it's because they have literally forgotten what the nazis were I, my my son was asking me the other day why was hitler so bad and i'm like man this is going to take a while this is going to take yeah, a while. Right. There, cause I'm not going to give yeah. you just, uh, well, he wanted to kill the Jews. No, no, no. It was so encompassing, son. So encompassing. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it, it, well, we only got actual- that short answer,
0: right? And that everything gets gets reduced to like a phrase, like this, like like the, the whole all of our debates today about oh Black Lives Matter or critical race theory. I mean, they don't. There's there's nuance in all this stuff. Even immigration, like build the wall, throw open borders. The truth is that immigration is a complex set of problems. Of course, we've been built on immigrants, but we can't have our borders open. So both sides are a little bit crazy here, in my view. Well, you know, it's ironic here, uh, Gary, is that eight years ago. The Gang of Eight on the Hill had uh, a, uh, this, this comprehensive immigration reform proposal. Now, it wasn't perfect. In fact, those on the left didn't like it because it had quotas or things that were like quotas. And people on the right didn't like it because it had a pathway to citizenship. After much work for dreamers. But the point is, is that at least it was a set of solutions to what are real problems. But today, if we just scream at each other, like uh, build walls, open borders. We're not really getting to any solutions to solve problems. We have to get into the details.
2: And you know, the funny thing of it is, is uh, I, I know you know these numbers better than me. But uh, the uh, last poll I saw, when they polled Democratic voters, the vast majority want tougher immigration laws. I mean, that's yes. a, that's a, right, a, that's of the d- Democratic oh, yeah. voters. So, yes. so and they so, <gasps> think we're all the same. Right. Yeah, i right. well, no, just saying. So, who is, who is the bar, who is the left wing? Who is the hard left trying to appeal to?
0: Right. I see what you mean. Yeah.
2: Because what happens
0: is that as the as the passion escalates, you have to make a point. You have to be, say things like "You're a Nazi." <laughs> when when that's crazy. When right, right. You like there's a, there's a continual escalation. Then look, look, Gary. One of the things we have to point out, I think, is that. There is a part of our media model, especially in digital media, is that whatever shouts the loudest gets the most clicks is what, what gets attention. And, you know, we, that that's really how our, our media more and more works that way, which is why, by the way, I love shows like yours, because here, like, we can talk about an issue with a little bit of detail. We don't have to scream in a tweet or or uh, tr- try to put a label on something, we can explain it a little bit. So that, that to me is part of the solution, is having a, more of a dialogue and listen to better, as opposed to shouting to each other. That's
2: why I love talking to uh, Seth, David Redwell, American Schism, how the two enlightenments hold the secret to healing our nation. We're gonna come back with with, with where we can find solutions. We're gonna come back with more on Here's <laughs> What We Know, right after this.
1: If you're enjoying this podcast, then maybe you'd like to hear more. Gary Scott Thomas hosts The Morning Show at 95.3 KRTY in San Jose, and you can tune in at krty.com. At 8.30 each weekday morning, Gary and Julie talk to artists, songwriters, and industry insiders. You'll hear from people like Garth Brooks and Luke Combs, new stars like Ingrid Andrus and Maren Morris, and songwriters like Shane McAnally, Lori McKenna, and Luke Laird. You'll find the best in country music on the South Bay's Best Country – krty.com.
2: Seth, David, Radwell, I'm so enjoying this conversation because, because you're right. It's it's I, I love it when people can actually sit down and talk. And I have friends on both sides of the spectrum. I have family members on both sides of the spectrum. And I don't mind talking about anything as long as we can stay. Let's stay in the realm of truth, not your truth, I think there's truth, right? You have your right, experience, right. but I don't think that's truth. You know, I, I've right. said this with my sisters. I have four sisters, and we will literally remember a family event four different ways. Different well, ways,
0: sure. yeah. That's,
2: that's four truths, but it's not the truth.
0: Well, so there's a great. What I one of the things I quote a lot in the book is this this work of Jonathan Roche, which is called the Constitution of Knowledge, and what his point is, he's explaining. First of all, well, the background is this, and it's important. To remember, sometimes we 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 think, okay, what's the importance of science and truth? The truth of the matter is, the the facts show that over the past. 200 years, based on the Enlightenment framework of truth and science, we've had more human prosperity than in the prior 2,000 years. So, for example, 200 years ago, Gary, the life expectancy was 30 years. Now it's over 70 across the globe, okay? 200 years ago, one in five children didn't survive till age five, and today almost all do. The point being is that the framework that came out of the Enlightenment, which led to an explosion of science-based inquiry has served us very well. And and that's based on the notion of that there is objective truth. Now, to your point, we all have our own experiences. But the way the constitution of knowledge works is that there's a process where knowledge, what gets accepted as knowledge, are things that are put forth but then proven or proven untrue. In other words, they're, they're tested against evidence. And there's a, a decentralized a Academy, if you will, of of scientists and and engin- and engineers and professionals who review each other's work. It's called peer review, and there's a transparency to it, and that's how we build information. That's how we get to all these solutions. So, so in other words, one of the things that I point out to, to to my my readers is that knowledge is an interesting thing. Sometimes we think certainty and knowledge have to work together. And it's not true. Certainty and knowledge are actually contradictory, meaning that in order to have knowledge, you have to be, you have to be able to entertain that you may not be certain that you may be wrong. You have to be able to entertain that there may be some other thing that's right and can be proven true. You have to be open to new ideas. That's how knowledge gets built. And so you're bringing up a very important point, which is there are too many Citizens today in discuss, discussions about issues that in the civic arena that are willing to say you know that's my truth that they're willing to say there's no that there's no such thing it's, it's alternative facts whereas we have to recognize what in fact is real data the data matter and how we can maybe disagree on interpretations of the data but it, but we can't disagree about the data itself. <laughs>
2: And data and science has come under attack. I think I, I think in, in, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think uh, it was a consensus that, that it was the folks on the right who were attacking science. Right. right but in right. the last 18 months from, from what I see. From what I see, it seems like science is more afraid of what's happening from the left. Because if you try to talk numbers with anybody and, and during this whole pandemic, you know, I'm on the radio. I feel a great responsibility to just report what I know. That's why we call the podcast. Here's what I know because I tell that to my kids all right. the time. It's not what I think. This is, let's not go with what we think. Let's go with the things that we know and build from there. That's where we're going to go with that. And, uh, and, and, the The whole thing about when I'm talking about the pandemic, I'm like, I'm just going to work on numbers. That's all I'm going to work on. I'm not going to get into the politics right. of anything. I'm just going to work on numbers. And the truth is, I find more disbelief from my friends who are on the left when you confront them with numbers than I do mm. on, the, on the right. When you get to the politics, it's like, well, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. Uh, I can't. Right. You know, that's one of those that we, you know, we're going to have to agree not to have a conversation because that's just now that's right. an emotion and I'm not going to deal with your emotions. Uh, but right. when you sit back and go, look, here's here's the thing that the cases have dropped 40 percent in the last five weeks. Right. You know, we, we 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 don't know why the Delta variant only lasts two months. Uh, we've not had many transmissions right. at all Fred. that we can prove from students to teachers. I mean, we're talking on right. one hand. So statistically, it doesn't even exist exist and oh by the way nobody in in europe ever put the kids in a mask and that's just
0: numbers. that's that's just
2: pure numbers and not emotions that's when you see a lot of pushback on science
0: yes i agree with you i there's there's no question that 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 you're look the both both sides have their fair degree of of the the, i'm talking extremes amen Uh, the, the edges are really are really you know uh it makes you crazy if you're a rational person. You're like, "Come on, guys, let's." <laughs> but, but, but the point is, is that we, we've got to go. We need to have a focus back on the numbers, and we need to recognize that we're all biased. We all have our own biases, and that's why trans science is transparent. It can be looked at by different people who can criticize it and look at it, and and come to consensus on what the experiment, what the data show. So we need a little bit more of that today. I think, uh, Gary, one of the great, in retrospect, one of the great. Tragedies of this of this era will be that we, in fact, politicize this epidemic to such a degree. I mean, it didn't have to be this way. I mean, I see in Europe it's much less political. I, in in general, it's kind of a shame, and it's indicative of why. Our political discourse is ill, is, is not doing well right now.
2: Well, as I've always said, you, you may be old enough to remember this. I'm not quite sure. But when I was growing up, literally everything they thought they knew about space and astrophysics within the span of my lifetime has been proven damn near wrong. Almost everything, right? Right. So well, that's, that's the notion of how
0: knowledge works. As I was saying, yes, stuff can be wrong all the time,
2: and it's Absolutely. not judgment call. It's just like okay, well, as we gain more knowledge, now we can we can reestablish the basis of our hypothesis, and really, most everything is a hypothesis. Right. Uh, and and so th- that's the thing that you the the anger is as you were talking about is getting back to that discussion, getting back to that ability to go, huh? I was wrong. How about that? instead of, well, I right. you know, the, it, I always sit back and say, I don't know if you heard about that story about the mayor of Oakland. They found a uh, rope tied to a tree and she wanted to investigate it as a hate crime. And then this, trainer this black male who was a trainer came out and she called the department of justice came out and said no that's a rope i used to exercise with i put right, black hey, rope I that and then she said well we're going to call the department of justice anyway because it didn't matter your intent it was a matter how it made the people feel and you're like right right whoa what? wow right. So it's it's taking facts and completely ignoring the facts and going with what the hell you want to do anyway, which, again, is what I'm saying with the science. We're going to just ignore the science and go and go that route. And I love how your book, you do give a blueprint on how we can find things that we can all agree on.
0: Exactly. I think, well, first of all, it starts with it emphasizing some of the things that we share. We were talking earlier about what the American credo is, like equality of opportunity and, and all the things that we built and why we're so envied all over the world. That's stuff that we should build on as opposed to focusing only on how we're different. So I, the book, what the book ends up ha- doing, uh, Gary, in the third section, is it gives a set of both Pra, uh, practical, structural things that we can change as well as mindset changes that have to happen. And they're both hard, but they're both doable. And, uh, uh, you know, some of the examples that I would give is that, for example, on the structural side, we probably need to, to change, at least at the, at the local level, some of the ways that we do elections. Because there's, there's an experiment that's called rank choice voting, which is shown to be very effective. And here's why. Right today, there's, there's a political lock on the conversation by the two parties. And it's almost like become a monopoly, where all of the industry around them, the, the lobbyists uh, it, it's not really in the interest anymore to solve people's problems. It's more in their interest to stay in office, is what is what I argue in the book. And and w- one of the reasons that's the case is because we don't have more voices. Every time there's a third-party candidate in a national election, it ends up being a spoiler. But, but here's the thing. In ranked-choice voting, it's very interesting because you could have three or four or five candidates running, and your vote counts more than once because you vote for the candidate you want. You rank the number one. And should that candidate not, not do well, you get to vote again because your second rank, it counts then. It's reallocated. So it turns out that what's interesting about ranked choice voting, which is a simple, by the way, change in the, in the way we do elections that can be adapted on the local level, and it is, by the way, being adopted Which that simple change ends up doing a few things. It gets more voices into the arena for more problem solving. It challenges the, the, the dominance of the two parties without being a spoiler. And it gives people a chance to actually have more of a voice because they get to vote each round with their next choice. So so that's a structural I'm using that as an example of a structural change that can be easily adopted to break what I think is a log jam. Another structural change that I talk about in the book, which I'm 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 an advocate for at term limits. And I think that that it's it's true that like let's take legislators, they do get better at making laws over time. I think we're at the point where Most of the the cronyism in Congress is is based on people that are too comfortable in their seats have been there too long, and we need new blood. And and this is an example I take from the private sector. You know, in the private sector, we have a kind of a a rule that if you're in the same job for more than you know uh, too many years you kind of get you get complacent at it. You need that new challenge. So in the private sector, after a couple of years when you get really good at your job, usually you get a promotion or you go do something else because you need, you need renewal. And I think the same is true in the public arena. We shouldn't have the congressmen and, and senators that are serving for 30, 40 years. It's, it's, that's not healthy. So I, I argue for term limits. Those are two examples of structural changes. And then on, on, the, on the mindset side, it's really about how we talk to each other and reestablishing listening that we've kind of given up on. I, I mean, we make it, um, you make it of value to go try to understand other perspectives of Americans as opposed to demonizing them. What I describe in the book is that we all have these human emotions about wanting to be with an in, with an in group and attacking the out group. It, it's a lot about primitive uh, human makeup. Lord you all flies. know this, by the way, because. Yeah, we we all know it because when you go to a sports arena, it's really fun to to rout and demonize the the, the other team, and that, that's fine for the sports arena, but it's not really healthy for getting to know, making public policy or getting to know other other people's perspectives. So it's it's separating out this mindset that that we use in sports as an example, and recognizing it's not always the best <laughs> in, in, in civic discourse. So so that's an example of a mindset change that I'd argue for in the book as well.
2: Yeah, they have to realize that we're all on the same team. And I loved, I love ranked choice voting. And if you've never, if you've never heard of it, literally every award show you've ever watched, whether it's the Oscars, the Grammys, the Tonys, whatever, it's a right. ranked choice voting. that's what you do is you list your top five choices and then it's whoever gets the most either number one or number two. I used to work at a radio station where the guy said, I don't want to be everybody's number one choice. I want to be everybody's number two choice. If I can be everybody's number two choice, I will win by a wide, wide margin. And that's the way the the conventions used to be. The conventions were when, when you would do that, you would just try to get, you want to be second or third on the list because whoever was first was going to be a little too contentious. Right,
0: exactly. And, and I think there's, it's a, there's, a, there's something to that. And, and I think we need to, that's an example that we can easily move back towards and, and, and stop this craziness. I mean, one of the things that I think that's happened is, and this has been described by many others, is that the political industry is, is too tight. It's too, in other words, it's too reliant on money that's established and that supports it. And, and it's not really looking out for solving problems the way we think about solving problems in the private sector.
2: Well, and we talked about that time machine, if we could bring Jefferson and Adams and all those guys to today. The one thing that right. would shock them is that we have an 80-year-old Speaker of the House. I mean, they, wait, what? That yeah. Are you yeah, right. Are you crazy? And, and that's the stuff that I think we can all agree on too. This has been my point of contention. I don't know why there's not an investigation to every member of the Senate and the House looking at how much their wealth has increased while the time they've been in there. I mean, that is nothing short of jaw dropping. Uh, and it's both sides. It's both sides. Uh, you know, that you could sit back and go, Hold it, how is a public servant worth 15 or 20 or 40 million dollars? Yeah. You know?
0: Yes, yeah. And that's right. something we can it's, all it's agree right. on. Yes, I totally agree. And I think it's an example of what's some of the stuff that's wrong with our current system. Absolutely. I totally agree.
2: And when you say term limits, what is your thought process on that? Because it's one thing to say it, but how many years do you look at?
0: Okay. So here's, the, I put I put a proposal out there in the book, which is the following. It, it would be, uh, six terms for a congressperson, so twelve years, and two terms for a senator. And the argument is that twelve years is a pretty long time. Yeah. And what, what do you think? You have to recognize that, uh, Gary, that most of the people in Congress, what's their number one priority? Get reelected. Not It's not. It's, it's not yeah. Get yes, reelected. But, so, all of a sudden, and, again, that's all they spend. They raise money and they spend time on. If you free them up from that. Think about all that energy that goes to doing something good. I mean, it's, 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 and and 12 years is a long time. You should be able to become a good legislator in 12 years. If, by the way, if you can't figure out how to legislate and develop some good policy in 12 years, you're probably the wrong person for the job. So, so I, I you know, I, I argue that, 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 that the, the amount of free energy, if everyone's not so worried about staying in office, would be huge. Anyway, so that's, that's what, what example I think also Supreme Court justices, it should be 25 years. I think it's longer, but I don't think a Supreme Court justice should stay on the bench forever. Uh-huh. Uh, I, think that, I think that we should give them an opportunity to, after 20, 25 years, to go to a lower court or retire. And uh, so, so there, there are a couple. I think term limits is very healthy, actually. In the private sector, we would never have someone in the same role for that long a time. We know that, that has to, that's not healthy.
2: I would love uh, to see how the idea of the Supreme Court would work, because then if you knew every president was probably going to get a Supreme Court justice, then you're not looking at let's change the structure and put in 17, 21 or 35 justices, Uh, because once you go down that road, every time another party gets in power, well, we're going to just increase the number. That's all we're going to do. We'll just increase the number until we get our guys. And uh, that's the part where I think the founders would go, hey, y'all, I see what you're doing, but I'm telling you, there's no there there. There's just no there. there. Right.
0: <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> well uh, it's so interesting. Yeah,
2: I, I do I do find it just uh just fascinating. I also, Dan Crenshaw had this idea not to get partisan because it's not a partisan. I loved he said, you know what, it would be great if every newly elected senator and thing, when when you have your class, they should send us to an island where there's nobody except pallets of food. And we all go and live with each other for a month. And we all get to know each other on a basic human level. And if we could do that... If we could do that, because he goes, I'm telling you, th- th- when I got there, they'd sit back and started telling me who was the enemy. The Democrats are the enemy. This is the enemy in that. And he goes, the truth of it is, I have so many friends on both sides. He goes, I know AOC and I look like we don't get along, but when we see each other in the hall. We always laugh. We always smile. We say hello. And if we could get back to having right. that human interaction, how far would that take us?
0: Well, it's really important. One of the ideas that I have that I discuss sometimes in the book is, you know, you talk about it. We used to have, I think we may have to bring back the idea of national service, but I don't mean military service. I mean that young people, if they're really going to understand what's important about the country in terms of civics and education, maybe we have to spend a year before they're 18 or between their 18 and 20 getting to visit other parts of the country and seeing the diversity of citizens and talking to them. Because I think if you don't get to know people, and of course, one of the one of the problems is being, too many young, I have a 15-year-old, too many kids being online all the time and not being in the real world is exacerbating this problem. But but my point being is I think you're absolutely right about talking to people in, in, in person, spending a meal, sharing a meal with them, going to see them, getting together with a neighbor, uh, that that's we can't let go of that. That's what brings us together.
2: Yeah. Once you once you start to know someone, if you want to get over racism, start start actually. Learning and meeting and knowing and loving people yes. of a different race because it'll change. I know I'm from a family in the deep South and probably they were as homophobic as they could be until one of our beloved family members came out as gay. And then all of a sudden it became real right. for us. And it was like, well, well, we can't right. hate Lee. We, we can't hate Les. We, we love them. And right. then it became real and you saw the entire family just let it go. It was just like, that's no yeah, exactly. longer something we even played that game. I know. And, and, and going around and meeting people, I, I share this comment with you because I just, I just love talking to you. Uh, a buddy of mine is from Britain, and he just got back from uh, from from going home. It's the first time he's been able to go home in two years. And uh, going home and, and spending two and a half weeks there, and I'm like, did you have fun? And he goes, yeah, but I'm glad to be back. I said, really? He goes, there's no place like America. He goes, I tell you that he goes, I tell you that is somebody who probably the next best place to live is Britain. And it's nowhere good as as good as America. It's just not. Yeah. And and this is a guy who would describe himself as very left wing. Right. And he goes, there's just it's, <laughs> right. it's nowhere. Nothing is as good as this country is right here. And I think if we got more kids to see that, to uh, you know what? Go, yeah. go out and see what's out there. Uh, I've, I, I, I remember an Uber driver from Lebanon and he was telling me about how this is the greatest country ever. He goes, I got three jobs and I have more opportunities here than I ever had. And I've told my family, come to America. I'm not going to support you, but here's the deal. If you work hard, you can have a great life and you can't do that in Lebanon. And I'm like, wow. Yeah.
1: Wow.
0: Right. I, to- I totally agree with you. I to- it's so important. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there you go. All right. Well, look, it- this has been so interesting. Thank you for, for, for inviting me on the show. I'd love to come back. And um, your readers can, can find some of these issues more, explain in more detail in American Schism. And I'm glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed the book and, and had me on. This was terrific.
2: Seth, David Radwell, I hope you come back. I'll, uh, I'll get it scheduled soon. Thank you so much for your time.
0: My pleasure. It's been wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks for joining us this week. If you loved this episode, please subscribe, download a few more episodes, and please leave a review. Reviews really help us get this out to more people like you. Also, we'd love to hear what your favorite part was. Be sure to join us on social media to engage in even more unexpected conversations. Until next time.